imagine with me, imagine with me that somebody comes bursting in the side doors, like on the side doors, hits the panic bar, just opens them straight up and comes out shouting, good news, right? So no context. You guys are here. You're listening to me. I'm also telling you good news in case you're wondering. Uh, but I'm telling you this good news. But they come in, slam the doors open wide, come running through the back, making the kind of noise that makes everybody kind of turn and be like, yo, who is that? Right? Don't do it now because Lindsay just walked in, but she didn't do it loud. Sorry, you just had the worst time. And, um, walk in and just yell good news for us, Lindsay. All right. So uh, there you go. It was all planned out. We're professionals here. What are some of the questions that you'd have for somebody bursting in onto the scene, shouting good news? Uh, what are the questions that you would have for them? What happened? what happened, right? Because news, news, hear this. No, hear this. It's, it's, duh. No, no. News always finds its place. That's literally the first point I had. Always something has happened. And somebody has taken those events and said, this is really good and other people should know about it. Uh, good news or news in general is always about events that have happened uh, that will change the future. And so there's something that has happened today, that has happened now, that has happened in our world that will change the way things are in the future. For good, that's why we say good news, or for bad, that's what we call bad news. But either way, these events have taken place in such a way and at such a time that they've already happened. And now I have to tell you what's happening in light of that. And then catch this. With news, there's always a waiting period in the middle while you wait for what's going to happen in the future to happen. And so if the person burst in the door yelling, good news, uh, maybe their child just had the cure for their sickness discovered. And they wanted to tell somebody and Desert Eagle wasn't listening, so they walked over to us and they figured it might be a little bit more hospitable and just wanted to shout, good news. That's the brewery across the street. Good news. Like my child, they finally figured out what's wrong. Now there will be a time in between when they discovered what's wrong and when they'll be healed and released from the hospital, right? Right? There's still a waiting period, but something has happened and something will happen in the future. They're going to be able to deal with this. And in the meantime, we shape our lives in light of what we know has happened and what will happen. This isn't religious talk. This is just the way things work in the world. But it's also the way we look at things when it comes to this season in the life, not just of the church, but in humanity's history. Uh, just for you guys, as we track along, because we've literally been in this series for 38 weeks now, um, tall, telling the story of God from creation through to new creation, uh, imagine with me that some guy showed up on the scene announcing good news. In case you're wondering what Jesus looks like as a stick figure, that's him. And, and a guy bursts on the scene in Mark 1 and announces, good news, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That's Mark 1.15. Bursts on the scene, this dude named Jesus, saying, repent, the kingdom of God is finally here. I'm the Messiah. Change the way you're thinking about everything because God has interrupted history in a fresh way and things will be forever different because of it. Now remember, what are the, what are the three things that I said uh, news would do. The first one is that something's happened. The second one is that 
there's, there's something in the future that will happen as well as a result of this. And the third thing, that there is a different way that life has to be done now or something has to happen right now in light of those two events. But news always takes place in a larger story. That's not just true of the Bible, but it is true of the Bible as well. When Jesus bursts on the scene and says he's the Messiah and the kingdom is coming in that first coming of Jesus, there's a story that came before him. Uh, this is the story that we learn about in the Bible, this first down arrow showing that God came and created everything good, right, and beautiful. He formed literally everything and went through creation saying, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. Gets to human beings, forms them, and says, this is very good. Made them in his image to reflect his glory to the entire world. Gave them a commission to cultivate and continue the work of creation alongside of him. But human beings, what's the next arrow? Kids, if you're a kid, what's the next arrow look like? Show me with your arms. Boom, it's an X. Something goes wrong. There's a rebellion in the story that human beings choose to say, God, we don't want to do things your way. We're going to do them our way. Uh, we believe that we should be able to say what is right and wrong. We don't want to take your word for that. And it was evidence as they ate the fruit of the tree. And immediately, immediately, Creation was plunged under a curse. The devastating effects of sin were felt. Uh, starting with them and themselves, they felt shame and wanted to hide. Between each other, they started to blame. Uh, with the creation itself, it all of a sudden was going to have thorns and animals had to die to cover for them. And even in their relationship with God, that was broken up. Because they went and they hid. And God had to come and say, hey, Adam, where are you? leaning towards him in love, even though Adam's response was to hide in shame. Again, why does this matter? The story goes on. God doesn't leave the world without hope, but he makes a promise. And this is the next forward arrow. Genesis 12, all the way through Malachi 4. This is your whole Old Testament, that God makes a promise that says he will send someone who will make it right. And that person who will come through the nation of Israel, bless you, little man, he'll come through Israel, but he will bless all people. He tells Abraham, you are blessed to be a blessing to others. In the story of the Old Testament, I'm not going to go into all the details. There's a lot of stories. We talked about some of them here on Sundays. Unfold what it looks like when God is faithful and people sometimes are. <laughs> uh, God upholds his covenant and he is faithful to his people. And Israel sometimes is faithful in following him in the way they ought to. And other times they turn toward idols and lesser things and worship them. Eventually, Israel uh, gets to the point where they've walked so far from God that God sends them into exile. But he made a promise to them in the prophets, those books that you probably never read, like Obadiah, Amos, Hosea, things like that, right? I mean, let's be honest. Zach, like, have you read Zechariah? Let's go ahead. But these books of the Bible all make a promise out and say, hey, I am going to make things right. My kingdom will come and I will send a king who is going to make this right. Somebody is going to come and heal what is broken between human beings and each other, between human beings and themselves, between human beings and creation, and yes, even human beings and God himself. That's going to happen. And then it goes quiet for 400 years. There's a lot going on in world history, but it goes quiet as far as God communicating with people. And then onto the scene pops somebody saying, Good 
news. The kingdom of God is finally here. Do you see why that announcement makes so much more sense in light of the whole rest of the story? Oh, this is what was promised when you read in Luke and Matthew about the birth of Jesus and it calls him the Messiah or it calls him the Christ. That wasn't just a name for him. That's saying he is that rescuer. He is that healer. He is the anointed one who will make things right. That's a proper term for him. And so that's the, that's the call. That's who he was. And Jesus walks in obscurity for close to 30 years and then he steps out with a miracle of uh, turning the water into wine, which is a beautiful story, showing that the kingdom of God is full of abundance. It releases shame. And God likes to party. All these really important truths are right there in that first sign that the kingdom of God was really here. And then he goes throughout life demonstrating and declaring, good news, the kingdom's here. Good news, this is what it looks like to live in my kingdom. Good news, this is open for anybody who wants to receive. Not just those who passed uh, seminary degrees. Not just those who went to college. Not just those who went to high school. Not just those who obey their parents. Not just those who become pastors. But literally anyone who wants to respond to the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and bow their knee is welcome at the table. And the religious... And the Romans come together to murder Jesus on a cross. That's why that cross sits in the middle. It represents his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because Jesus doesn't stay dead, but three days later, he resurrects. Which is something that no one ever saw coming. That the old age would end, that, that death would have been defeated at the cross, but that a new age would begin for one person in the middle. Nobody saw that coming. Jewish people always thought that this would happen for all people after the Messiah came. That's why they were so stinking confused when just Jesus walks out of the tomb and they're like, I don't get it. It was because they had always been told it was going to work out differently. I get, cut them some slack, right? But Jesus really did resurrect. He really did come forward from new creation. His body, physical body, resurrected. And it was as if, one man says, it was as if what God said, what I did for Jesus, I'm going to do for the entire creation one day. That there is a day coming when Jesus will return and he will restore and renew and reconcile all those relationships that were broken forever. And everyone that bows a knee to King Jesus is a part of his restored creation. And everyone that says, I don't want to do that. I want to do my own thing, have my own Lord, be my own Savior, do things my own way, not trust in this Jesus, will be forever separated from him. Jesus talks about this all this time as a separation. And that sits heavy, doesn't it? That there will be a restoration and all who bow a knee are a part of that. All who don't, have chosen another pathway, the end of which is separation from God. But there's an act in between. That's this act of the church. And this is where we find ourselves today. This is the act of the story that the epistles tell. So Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Peter, all those books tell about what it looks like for people to live in light of the fact that the resurrection has happened and that Jesus will one day return to make everything right. But how do we live in the waiting time in the middle? What does it mean that these events have taken place? Uh, the good news, Jesus came. It happened. That's something that took place. It's part of a bigger story. And there will be one day where he will return to make everything new and right. Shalom, heaven and earth coming back together. 
That'll happen one day. But remember that period of waiting. How do we live while we wait? Uh, some of the people uh, went out and they would go and announce this news to new communities. Uh, one guy named Paul was a guy who used to believe that Christians were crazy, so much so that he went around and killed them, literally put them on the chopping block and had enough with them and put them out. So th these guys are too far gone. We need to get them out of our country, right? Until he had an experience with Jesus and Jesus changed his mind about all that. And he saw that Jesus was in fact the Messiah, not a made up savior. And he believed this story to be true. And he believed that one day Jesus would return to restore all things. And in the meantime, he wanted to go out to all across the globe to tell people, hey, there isn't just a new way to live. Like Paul didn't go around just doling out advice for people like, hey, you want to have a better marriage? Here's what you do. Hey, you want to make a little bit more cash? Here's what you do. Hey, you want to make God really, really happy? This is what you do. The primary thing that he went out doing was to say, hey, good news. The world is fundamentally different because Jesus came. I know it wasn't in a way anybody expected, but his arrival on the scene was real. His murder was real and his resurrection was real. And somehow, as that news went out, people's hearts were changed. Like people sat under that teaching and as Paul taught it, something happened inside of them where they said, I believe that to be true. It sounds crazy, I get it, but I believe that to be true. What does that mean? And in any city he went to, whether it was Galatia or Corinth or Ephesus, there'd be small communities that got together to say, hey, I believe that this event took place. I believe that Jesus is who he says he was. I believe that he will do what he said he would do. And right now, how do we live that out in this community where we live? And so I've got one sermon to wrap up the entirety of what Paul said churches should do. Sounds fun, right? I don't know where you go, but we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13. So if you're not there yet, I really don't know how to help you because that was a really long intro. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, Paul's going to say, I want to show you the most excellent way. He's been telling the church in Corinth about the good news of Jesus, of his life, his death, his resurrection, how the church is built up on that foundation, what it looks like when members of the church come together and use all their separate giftings uh, that the Spirit pours out on people so that others can know the good news and so the churches can be built up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is an incredible passage like that. But them, probably like us today, we're like, yo, I want the good gift. Like, like whatever the one is that that's a real good gift, that's the one that I kind of want, like if I'm going to be honest. I mean, there's some of those that are like gifts like poverty. Come on. Gifts like being put to death as a martyr. Like, or there's like the gift of prophecy or healing or speaking in tongues. Like people were competing over these things. And so Paul makes this statement. He says, hey, at the end of chapter 12, let me show you the most excellent way. A lot of times this passage comes up um, on very carefully crafted Pinterest boards. If you've got one, I'm not hating on you. It's just where it shows up. Uh, or it shows up in weddings. Uh, they make jokes in movies about which passage is it going to be this time that are they going to read. Like, is it going to be Ephesians or is it going to be 1 Corinthians 13? Um, when in reality, the canvas for this is more likely uh, to be seen in the messy, mixed up life of your Missio community. 
right? This was spoken to a church, to a small group of people who were made up of uh, those who were still trying to figure out what does it mean that Jesus is Lord and those that had been following God for years. Uh, Those that were culturally Jewish and those that were culturally a million other things. Uh, Those who really thought you could eat food that was sacrificed to idols and those that were yelling at those people. Uh, Well, they were still trying to figure out how in the world do we take the Lord's table in such a way that people don't die? Like this is literally the stuff they're wrestling through. Uh, What do sexual ethics look like? They had people all across the board, including people who were with their stepmoms and then people that were celebrating that. Other people are saying, yo, that's jacked up. And so coming together, people were like, yo, this is who's gathered together. That's who he's teaching this to. Not at a Pinterest board wedding. Though you can preach it there too and it works. But let me read for us. And we'll just look at this text for a few minutes. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. And yet I will show you a most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all the mysteries and all the knowledge, all the things, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, uh, some, say, some transcripts say literally, give my body over to flames. Like if I choose martyrdom, if that's what I do with my life, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Uh, Eugene Peterson in his translation, his paraphrase the message, he says this, so no matter what I say or what I believe or what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. When Paul's writing to the church, he says, you can answer all the theological, doctrinal questions right and still be wrong. I know, right? It's jacked up. You can get all the answers right, but if the posture in thinking through it, in your your demeanor and your decision making is not driven by love, then you're nothing in the kingdom of God. You can have worship music on in your car. And it doesn't really matter. You can attend all your MC's gatherings. You can listen to the most podcasts about Jesus. Your Spotify can be all podcasts about all Jesus for all the last year. And without love, it really means nothing. You can even have the gift of poverty or give yourself to martyrdom. But without love, it's nothing. You can lead a missio community, but if it's not led out of love, it's nothing. You can stay with your spouse, but if you're not loving one another, he says, it doesn't really matter in the same way. I want you to be people, a community, a people who demonstrate this is what love looks like and what love does. Have you guys ever read Amos? That's right, I'm going back. We're going back. I know that's not fair. Some of you are like, what? That's a book? It's there. Um, Kenzie, do you remember that book? Are you there yet? Kenzie's memorizing. uh, This is Parenting 101. This isn't live stream. Uh, Kenzie's Parenting 101. Uh, I told Kenzie if she memorized all the books of the Bible, how much do you get? $100. Why? Because it matters to me, all 66 books of the Bible, if you get them all. And so she learned some fresh ones. She's like, where did all these names come from? I was like, they're all in there. She's like, I've never heard you talk about them. So we're going to get obscure references these days. Um, Amos, uh, he writes this in chapter 5. God says this, and this is again Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. He says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and your conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects, your pretentious slogans and goods. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes. He's talking to people of God. 
your public relations, your image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When's the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. He's saying, you can do all this stuff, and you can even do it really well, but without love, I want nothing to do with it. I want to speak to something uh, real quickly. Uh, for some of us, those words stand on their own. We've been doing empty works, and we need the reminder that the fuel and the drive and the posture and all of this is meant to be love. And so these words land as they're spoken. Uh, what I'm watching happening, though, in, in culture today is that people go, okay, so God doesn't care about the stuff. He only cares about the posture of my heart. He doesn't care what my hands do. See, there's a verse in the Bible. He doesn't care what you do. He only cares about what you believe or what you think, or what's inside you. And that's a gross misunderstanding of what he just said. He said, I want justice. Can you do justice without action? No. He said, I want fairness. Can you be fair and never act? No. Well, what he's saying is, I want both. I want you to both love me and overflow in love towards your neighbor. And that's what the people of God were always meant to be. That's how Israel was supposed to live, and that's how the church is supposed to live. It's not an either-or world. He's not like, I care what you do with your hands, or I care about what you believe. He says, no, I care about you as a people, and I want you doing both, rightly ordered in worship, and also rightly acting in light of all that I've done for you. He says, this is the most excellent way. He's not telling you don't prophesy. He's not telling you if God called you to be poor, to be poor. He's not telling you if God calls you and puts you in a place where it's my life or I denounce Jesus. Well, I don't care what you do. No, he still wants you to not denounce Jesus and to say he is Lord no matter what. He still wants you to say with faith, mountain move and watch the mountain move. He still wants you to look on with hope and live in such a way. But he wants us to do it fueled and driven by love. And I want us to just give us one moment, I'll put it on the clock, of silence to bring this before Jesus. And I want you to assume for the moment that maybe, just maybe, you aren't perfectly loving in all that you do. Just, just entertain the hypothetical. Uh, that maybe something else could be vying and you could be looking towards your right action instead of your love of God and receiving that for yourself and then extending that to others as the drive behind what you do. Uh, would you give Jesus a moment as we just pause to maybe point something out to you? Uh, we don't just preach because we like the sound of people's voices, but we want to give the Spirit space to move as well. So is there something he wants to stir up for you, an area where love is not driving you? Or maybe something else has captured your heart? I'll let him bring that up and then I'll keep reading. He keeps on writing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Love never fails. Uh, he gives this beautiful imagery. Uh, it's poetic. There's, there's three different triptychs in here. Where are you at, Nick? Track it down. First Corinthians 13's got one in there for you. Um, if you listen to his prodigal sons, you know that's 
art that Nick just loves. So you're welcome. It's in here. You got a triple. Um, but he does, he does this beautiful imagery, not so much saying, here's the different pieces of love, as if it were a frog that you were dissecting. Has anybody ever dissected something? Um, what do you do when you dissect something? What do you do, Ken's? You don't kind of, you do. Um, you take it and you have a frog pinned out, like I remember that in biology, and you cut it open and you see where all the different parts are, right? And that at the end of that, the frog is dead and it's lifeless, but you got to know where all the parts are. And sometimes we approach scripture like that. It needs to be broken down, parsed out, brought out. Look at all the pieces. Uh, but what Paul's doing here is much different. It's as if you went into a pond and you saw a frog playing in the water and you're like, hey, what are frogs like? And you watched it and you're like, oh, they ribbit? What's something else about frogs? What else do frogs do? Frogs hop. What else do they do? They eat flies. Uh, what else do they do? They dance. Do they swim? They swim. What else do they do? They croak. Up, oh, up. Oh, that goes over between both of them. They die, they croak, and they croak out loud. Mm-mm-mm. Do you have one more? What is it? They give you warts. If you got too close and you held one, that's been told. I don't know if it's true. Somebody else is a scientist. I never messed with them for that reason. I think that's what my mom told me so I didn't hold on to frogs and bring them around the house. The older I get, now at 40, I'm thinking through that and I'm realizing it might have had more to do with that. Uh, but there's, catch this, there's another way to describe and learn about frogs where you keep the living thing and you just watch how it works. I think that's what Paul's doing for us as he's talking about love. He's saying these are all the sorts of ways that love acts. This is what love does in the world. This is what it doesn't do. Uh, just so we know, when he uses the word love here, uh, it is, I'm going to do a little bit of that dissecting a different way. Uh, it's the word agape. It's not like a warm, fuzzy feeling. This isn't like when the music leader just hits the right notes and you get a warm, fuzzy, and you're like, yo, I just love God. Uh, this is sacrificial care of others. Uh, this is the love that God showed in sending Jesus to the cross. Uh, this is the love that we're called to in the Christian community. He uses a specific word that stands for the sacrificial care of others. This isn't whimsical. It's a decision made to act in such a way as if others mattered more than I do in the moment. That the best thing I can do, the most loving thing I do, how I represent the reign of God in this person's life, the word that he uses in that is to love them. Uh, just a fun thing to do maybe later. Carl Barth says uh, one of the, the best ways that you can understand what love is in 1 Corinthians 13 is to replace Jesus every time you read the, read the word love. You guys can do that on your own time. It's pretty powerful to realize that he perfectly lived out all this. You can replace Jesus for all of the love sections and it still preaches a super powerful text. Here's something that caught my attention with this though is that when I don't love, I still do something. Did you guys catch that in the text? It's saying, here's what love isn't. Like, even when I'm not choosing to love, it doesn't mean that I cease to act. It means I act in other ways that are unloving. And so maybe our actions and the way we respond are maybe more apathetic. Maybe they're manipulative. Maybe they're cynical. Those are all ways to act when we don't love. Uh, this one's free. The fruit of cynicism will never grow in a healthy heart. If you find yourself moving towards cynicism, that is, not, that is a good indicator that you're not operating out of love and that your heart isn't moving towards a place of health. Uh, that's not one of the fruit of the Spirit. 
But Paul's calling them to a more excellent way or the most excellent way. And so he keeps going. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things, right? Uh, there's that sense of which uh, if Daniel was acting like Vinny right now, we would all look at him funky. Vinny, we expect to make noise and drool. If Daniel was over there doing the same things, somebody would call an ambulance. <laughs> I hope. Right? You love him enough, wouldn't you, Kyle? You'd, hit, you'd, you'd touch that 911. Cool. Um, he's saying there's a way I used to act when I was, when I was younger. Like, but then as I mature up, I behave differently. For now, as we see, only a reflection in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall be known fully, even as I am known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I think you guys get the point from this passage, that as the people of God, the call for us is to be a people who love. Studying love is exciting. Being taught the doctrines of love is enlightening. Praying about love is heart-moving, and seeing love modeled is motivating. But in the end, we must lovingly obey God and sacrificially serve people. We must be practitioners of love, not theorists. We must be doers of love, not talkers. We must forge a connection between words and action. That's from a book by Alexander Strout called Love or Die. So how do we do that? I see the call I hear Paul's words echoing out that as we wait between Jesus' first coming and his second, we're to be a people of love. How do we do that? The first thing that I would call us to is to remain rooted in God's love. Catch this. The first movement is not towards action. It's towards remembrance. And I think a lot of us often, we're like, all right, what are the things I need to do then? What are the things I need to do? I would tell you this. If you want to be a person who loves, we don't run directly to activism. But if we want the fruit of love, we have to look at where the roots of our lives actually draw their source from. We have to be able to say, in pressure and in times when it's pressing down on me, do I actually move towards Jesus? Do I look towards his love of me? Or do I look towards something else to give me value and meaning and worth and suck the energy out of that? Because that doesn't produce love. It'll produce something else. Uh, Jesus writes in John, he says, As the Father loved me, so I loved you. Which is crazy, right? And this is the word, right? As the Father agaped me, so I agape you. Like, as the Father sacrificially and selflessly loved and cared for me, that's the same way I cared for you, he's talking to his disciples. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Nope, he says something before that. He says, now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. The call that Jesus gave to his disciples on the night that he was about to be betrayed and then die was to call them to remain in his love. Something that's important about this, he didn't say, remain in how you feel about me. He didn't say that. He didn't say, remain in your love for me, did he? He actually said, remain in my love for you. When it comes to us and God, we're the insecure partner. 
A worthy one who's always asking God, did I do enough? God, am I good? God, I messed up. Am I still good? Do you still like me? Do you still love me? And the cross stands out as a resounding yes. I absolutely do. Stand in the current of my love and let that wash over you. That's the first steps we move towards. If we want to be a people of love, we remain rooted in the love that God has for us. Brennan Manning says that the deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Cool. Now you told us what to do and it wasn't to do something. Remain in the love of God. But here's what I would love for us to aim at. Small acts done with great love. If that sounds really well worded, it was Mother Teresa, it wasn't Kevin Platt. He said, few of us can do We cannot all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. I think that goes against our American sensibilities. We all can say, all right, what's the biggest, grandest way that I can demonstrate love yet? And we want to have the biggest thing we could possibly do when most of life is actually lived out in mundane moments where we have a choice. Do I choose self or do I choose to love someone else? Like, do I choose what I want and what would gratify me most in this moment? Or do I sacrificially lay down what, my agenda for someone else? Much of life that comes down to things like, all right, who's replacing the toilet paper roll if you're in a household with other people? Uh, that comes down with who gets up with sick kids. You're laughing because it's true. It comes up with uh, who's going to care for the sick. It comes up with who's going to go the extra mile. Who's going to do this? Who's going to provide food for the neighbor who doesn't have any? Who's going to protect the interests of the immigrant neighbor as they come in when others want to turn the other way? A million small moments. Uh, there's a movie. Have you guys ever seen the movie A Hidden Life? I didn't think you would have. It's three hours uh, and there's barely any action in it. But let me tell you the the narrative of this. It's a beautiful movie. It's well worth watching, even though it is almost three hours. I watched it this week. uh, And it tells the story of a man from Austria. And it's intentionally an obscure person. His name's Franz something. He had a really simple life. He loved his wife, had kids, had a farm. In World War II, they came in and they said, hey, you have to fight for Hitler and sign off saying that you, uh, you pledge your allegiance to Hitler. And he says, I won't do that. Simple dude, you don't know about him in history and that's the point of the movie. It goes through three hours of telling the story of all that he suffered, uh, of all the people who came to him and just said, do you really think that your resistance or your faithfulness to your God, do you think that it's doing anything? Do you think that this will do anything to the tide of the war? Do you think that in this one little remote jail cell where we're beating you, that anybody outside these walls will ever hear about this? It's called a small life because the idea is that in that world, you'd never heard of him. He lived his life in the small act of resistance. He never signed off. And at the end of it, he dies. So there's the spoiler alert. Don't watch it thinking that he's going to get out of the jail cell. Uh, It wasn't a Hollywood produced movie as much as it was the telling of a true story. So you're welcome, Angela. That's how it ends. But the animals all stay alive. The quote movie, though, and this is why I said that the idea of the small, the smallness. And this hidden life came from a quote by George Eliot that says this, The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been 
is half owing to the number of people who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. And that movie unpacks what that looks like, that somebody lived a faithful life. Nobody visits the tomb. Nobody cares. But in his resistance, he was true to what he was called to do. And it says that most people's faith, most people's faith will be far more like that than the thing that you see on Instagram preaching to the masses. But will we be faithful to small acts of love? Where do we start this? This one's super simple. First place, in our homes. In our homes. Kids, do you love your siblings with this same sort of love? That's what you're called to as part of the family of God. Do you love your parents with this love? Parents, do you love your kids? Spouses, do you love each other? In those primary relationships, are you demonstrating this sort of love? That will echo out for generations or it won't based on how you act. A second place, and we'll use this for Missio. In the household of faith that we call Missio. So these smaller Missio communities that are scattered throughout the city. Uh, this is another context where we live out this sort of love towards one another. And then I can't draw a world, but we'll call it this way. And you could just say out throughout the world. There is a world out there that is longing to see a people who love and have a place at a table where they're welcomed in, uh, regardless of the mistakes, regardless of the historic decisions they've made, uh, regardless of how guilty we may be, of how fractured our lives are, but to be welcomed in and sacrificially served in the name of Jesus. So what should the church be like if we get one text to say it? Would we be a community who loves like Jesus loved us. You guys pray with me. Jesus, we, we're grateful for your love. I pray that even over the next little bit as we come to the table, that you would remind us of the beauty of your death and your resurrection, uh, the love, and we say, how far should we go in loving others, that even as the bread is in our hand or the juice touches our lips, that we remember that that's the model and that's the empowerment. A God where we're struggling to love neighbors right now, and I think all of us are in some capacity. There's somebody that we have our heart set against or a situation that's raising cynicism out of us. I pray that we would realize the well that we draw from isn't our own ability to conjure up love, but it's as we stand in the current of your grace that our hearts are filled to be able to do that. And so would we receive a fresh the grace that's available because of you, Jesus. And would Missio be a people who aren't known for the way that we know the true story or how many MCs we have or what worship's like on a Sunday, but would we be known as a people who love well in the small things of life? We ask this in your name, Jesus, and the power of your spirit. Amen. If you're a follower of Jesus,